I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the fourth trimester. We are here with guest Angelique Millette. She is a nationally recognized pediatric sleep consultant, a lactation educator, a pediatric sleep researcher and creator of the Hands to Heart Sleep Swaddle. She has a doctorate and her research addresses infant sleep locations, infant maternal sleep quality, and postpartum depression and anxiety. She has done a ton of work with parents, nonprofits, government agencies, corporations, universities, and parents all over the country. Mm And to find out more, you can go to her website, which is angeliquemillette.com. So how are you doing, Angelique? Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing very well today. Thank you. And eager to speak with you about sleep. So we just wanted to kick off with a first question that we'd like to ask all of our guests, which is, what was your fourth trimester like? (laughs) Oh, that's such a sweet question to ask. I appreciate that question. I had a wonderful fourth trimester I, I nested. I didn't work. I was fortunate enough that I planned out the, the three or four months off from work and from clients. And I put all the books away. I've been reading literature, science, studies, uh, et cetera, et cetera, about uh, bonding, breastfeeding, sleeping, all that good stuff. And I actually put all those books away. I didn't read a single thing. I just enjoyed my time with my daughter, Montana. You know, I love to hear that, Angelique. <laughs> that's that's what I hope for all new families, if, if at all possible. It was such a gift. I love science. I'm a big science head, but it, it just felt so right to just be in our rhythm and, and get to know one another. And I'm so grateful that we had that time. Families always ask me, you know, what can we do to get sleep on track for our baby? And I say, uh, simplify your lives. Yeah. Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Do some sleeping. <laughs> Do some sleeping. Simplify your commitments. Simplify your lives. Do a lot less, especially in the first three to four months, because those are times for self-care and getting to know your baby, getting to know the kind of parent you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That makes me think of something my midwife said about me when somebody was asking how I was doing during my first couple of weeks postpartum, she said, she's a good animal. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It really is yeah. all animal nature. What happens? Yeah. You know, the, that first, that first, tri- that fourth trimester, it, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And we had breastfeeding issues. And so I'm certainly grateful to the 20 plus years of being in the midst of, of families and learning so much that I certainly went to in the fourth trimester was all those imprints and templates of, okay, what is Montana trying to tell me she needs? And I've seen this before 
uh, I had oversupply. Mm-hmm. And so it took a lot of experimenting and it really gave me a lot of compassion for the moms that are going through oversupply. Yeah. A lot of focus is on, is mom making enough milk, but what about when mom makes too much milk and <laughs> how that affects sleeping and feeding? So really deep in my work with families, that's for sure. Well, let's slump in then. What's the main issue parents have when they come to you? The primary issue is a frequent waking at night from their baby or their child. Bedtime resistance would be another one. Bedtime resistance would mean that it just takes a long time for their baby or child to fall to sleep mm-hmm. at bedtime, uh, one or two hours or more. And then, of course, with you know frequent waking at night, it could be a baby that's waking every one or two hours at night. It needs to have you know, any number of what we call sleep associations to get back to sleep. Yeah. So the parents are really worn out. Babies are also a bit worn out too. You know, they're having a lot of dis- what we'll call unconsolidated sleep. How did you get interested in baby and parent sleep? Well, I was in college and I began to become very interested in, in women's health, specifically pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and the transition to family. And in that interest, I became a midwife. I had a really some unique opportunities. That was 22 years ago. Can you believe it? <laughs> and so I ran with it. I had all the time in the world to just immerse myself in the work. And as I was doing that, what really just got me really interested was the interplay between attachment, parenthood, uh, mood disorders, specifically in moms, and then sleeping for parents and and babies. So I was working as a midwife and I became even more interested. I love home birth and I love the midwifery model, but I was quite pulled to working with high-risk moms and really understanding what complicated their postpartum experience and led to some of these variables, you know, like the combination of insomnia, postpartum mood disorders, Mm -hmm. even disorganized sleep and behaviors in babies like reflux, colic, feeding behaviors, sleep behaviors. So there was this kind of like, what's going on there? I was really pulled to working overnight with families of all things. This is the energy of a 20-year-old. I was attending births at the birth center and at the hospital, and then I would drive over and do the overnight work with families. I call it my field work. I spent 10 years not sleeping at night. Boy, yeah, if that doesn't set you up for this job, what what would? <laughs> and there's no there's no better lab than being in a family's home at night and watching the night the dynamics unfold and observing all kinds of sleep patterns mm-hmm. in babies and parents. It was really rich with gosh, how does all this go together? So when I did my PhD, I started my PhD, I think I was twenty eight. Then I got to look at all the research on all those variables and I was surprised to find out it was really outdated. It looks primarily at the extinction or cried out method, which is a method where you'd put a baby into the crib at bedtime, you would leave and you don't return until the morning. Yikes. Which, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and I agree. A lot of parents will say the same thing. They'll say, well, we're, you know, as tired as we are, we're not prepared to try that. And then some parents will try it uh, without a lot of understanding about attachment and child development and brain development. So I tasked myself with reading every single piece of literature on all those variables, sleeping, feeding, attachment, and sleep patterns, and postpartum mood disorders, and how 
you know, experiences or incidents during pregnancy and birth and postpartum impact sleep cycles in babies. I was just a sponge for really reading everything available on the topic. At the same time, I was working with families and I really knew that we had to shift the paradigm away from one size fits all sleep solutions. And we had to get into looking at all these variables that contribute to sleep patterns in families and coming up with dynamic methods that address the specific needs of that family, meeting the family where they're at and seeing the sleep deprivation and the sleep issues as an opportunity for parents to understand their baby's communication and behavior and development versus the old paradigm, which is consultant sleep training paradigm. The parent needs to just buck up, toughen up, leave the room, don't come back. That baby is manipulating you as if kids can't manipulate parents. That doesn't really start to develop until they're three or four years old. That ability to really So there was this real shift away, like, let's create this new paradigm. And that was, I would say, 12, 13 years ago when I really started to theorize the paradigm. I had been doing it with families, so it was all there in the field work. But then when I started to actually conceptualize the the theory and then started to work with nonprofits and universities and working on site training, that's when it really started to click. Like, all right, we're going to shift away from this old paradigm. It's not really serving families. It's very limited in scope. At the same time, the field was starting to really catch up. There's been a dearth of research in the last 10, 15 years about all these variables that I'm really interested in. So I'm happy to say that as I was shifting into the approach, I was able to then offer families some really compelling research about why it's important to look at other possibilities when it comes to their child's sleep. You said so many interesting things there. And one I wanted to pick up on first is the cry it out method, because maybe people don't really know what that is. What is that? Why is it? I mean, is it fair to say it's a little out of fashion now? Well, I wish I could. I I wish that was the case. There's a very esteemed and popular pediatrician out of Brooklyn, New York, who just made a statement in the last year saying that you know, we want, we need to sleep train babies using the cry it out extinction method starting at two months. And he's very popular. And so I I wish I could say that it's out of fashion. I will say that what we're bringing to the table is other methods. And we're educating parents about those other methods. The extinction cry it out is the method that was probably used when we were babies. It's been around for two generations, at least. It's the method that Weisbluth refers to in his book, which I would say the grandfathers of the sleep field would be the two pediatric sleep researchers, Ferber and Weisbluth, here in the U.S. that is. And so Weisbluth proposes extinction or cry it out. That method, you put a baby down and then you don't return. So you are, in fact, staying out of the room the entire night. The way that families would implement it is that they immediately extinguish all night feeds uh, so that you know they're achieving like a 12-hour cycle of sleep. Ferber, just to distinguish. Ferber method or Dr. Ferber suggests using what's called the interval method or graduated extinction. With graduated extinction, you increase the time that you're out of the room. So you'd leave the room for five minutes, come back for a minute, leave the room for seven minutes, come back for a minute, leave the room for 10 minutes, come back for a minute. The premise with that method is that you're checking on the baby, but you're not picking up or feeding or replacing a pacifier. So those are 
we'll call them crying methods because they're largely dependent upon the baby crying, self-soothing, and settling to sleep. They are methods where they're very low on parent proximity and parent responsiveness. With the extinction method, there's no parent proximity. The parent's not in the room at all. There's no parent responsiveness. With the interval method, there's at least a little bit. What are the physical and emotional aspects of it? So for example, how would a baby feel during the extinction method? And when is a baby big enough to experience that amount of time without feeding? Those are the questions to ask. And, you know, much like you, other parents are asking those questions, and I'm glad they are. What I've been able to find in the research, and what I do is I pull from all kinds of disciplines to really understand the full picture. But starting around two months, babies are developing emotions. Sadness, anger, frustration, happiness. And so you can bet that as a baby's crying, they are feeling anger, sadness, and frustration. That is definitely evident in the cry. And for if a sleep consultant suggests that the baby isn't feeling anything, which is, again, part of that old paradigm, that babies aren't feeling anything, they're just manipulating you if they're crying, they're really missing the point about child development, like <laughs> completely missing the whole thing. So babies are, in fact, feeling all of that. Is it a reason to sleep train? Is it a reason not to sleep train? Like that's, that is the, the big question that we ask. What I do, because I do use that interval crying method, is that I take some departures from the classic interpretation of the method. I'm a lactation educator and I also study attachment. And so I make some modifications to interval method to take into account breastfeeding and attachment. The research, it's difficult. You, you can't ask a baby, well, how did that feel last night when you cried? There's some ethical constraints. You can't set up a, a, what we'll call an A-plus study to know for sure what a baby's going through. The best evidence that I have is what is the baby's behavior like the next day? That's the question I ask parents that are using sleep training. What is your ba baby behaving like the next day? Variables that I'm looking for, like I ask parents, are they making eye contact? Are they cooing, babbling? Are they accepting the feed when offered? And because I've worked as a child therapist with traumatized babies and young kids, sadly it happens, but th these are babies that have been actually abandoned and neglected. There are some characteristic behavioral changes. Babies begin to withdraw. They don't feed. They don't make eye contact. They don't coo. They don't signal parents. That's my baseline. I'm looking for changes in behavior. I also don't start, if I'm going to use that interval method, that crying method, I don't start it until a baby's at least four to six months of age. And there's, they've exhibited some signs of self-soothing. And I wait because I want to establish that the, there's some attachment that's been developed in the first four to six months. So we'll call that, well, let's call it just an attachment bank. It's, I think it's a limiting term for it, but I think it helps to visualize it. Yeah. So we imagine that the baby's needs are consistently met. So when we use this sleep training method, we're now shifting the baby's expectation of how the parent's going to respond. But we only do a little bit of that. And we bank on the baby having developed what's called resiliency. That's a big part of this is that babies that are having their needs consistently met develop resiliency so that if there's a little bit of a break to the relationship with the parent, which I actually think sleep training is a break, that they're able to manage it with that resiliency that they've developed. A two-month-old doesn't have any resiliency developed. They haven't had enough interactions with the parents who've developed a bank and have resiliency there. So we have to really take into account so many different variables when we look at which method we're going to use.
And that, again, I'm bringing the parent back to the child's behavior the next day. Probably a large part of that is because I am only asking the baby to do enough that they're not overwhelmed by it. So I'm not asking a parent to drop all the night feeds as they sleep train. Mm. We keep at least one or two or three night feeds because the night feeds are about nutrition and hydration, but they're also about resetting and bonding. Mm-hmm. It's a long night, yeah. <laughs> especially if you get hungry. <laughs> it's a long night. And yeah. I think it's very reasonable to expect a baby to have a night feed until they're four to 12 months of age. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so I do make a lot of modification. There, there isn't really a good way for us to know what a baby's feeling. I mean, that's the limitations of this. What we do know is that when babies aren't sleeping well, when parents aren't sleeping well, we have so much research to show us that can impact the relationship between the parent and the baby. And so we just have to look at it case by case to see, is this family, if we were to introduce this intervention where there's crying, is can we conceivably offer in some support so that when the baby's unhappy and crying and the parents are feeling, oh gosh, is everything going to be okay? Can we do this in such a way that the baby still knows that they're safe and loved. Right. Yeah. And that's like, that is the question. Mm-hmm. And how do we want our baby to feel when they're learning how to self-soothe and sleep on their own? Well, I, I, like I said, I don't mince words with parents. I, I remind them, you're, when your baby's crying, they're mad. <laughs> they're sad. They're frustrated. Mm-hmm. There's an extinguishing of a, of a expectation, a certain expectation that the baby has that the parent's going to respond a certain way. And right. And I I think sometimes a problem might be for parents and I I would apply this to all things parenting over low, the span of however many years you parent, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's so easy to detach from this, right? Mm-hmm. It's a simple matter of asking yourself, what does it feel like in my body when something triggers anger? When I am angry, when I am frustrated, it could be my own thoughts, right? That are triggering these things. But in any case, like, what does it feel like when I'm angry? What does it feel like when I'm sad? What does despair feel like? Mm-hmm. You know, and is that something you want your child to have to do unsupported for mm-hmm. any amount of time? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know about you, Angelique, but I think that's a good starting place. Like mm-hmm. ask yourself, how much of that can you tolerate, mm-hmm. really tolerate? And then ask yourself what you're asking your baby to do potentially. It doesn't mean you backlash on yourself and say, oh, well, I guess sleep deprivation and, and uh, you know, anxiety-driven depression is my lot in life. <laughs> it shouldn't be, right? Like this is often what we're talking about. A parent needs to get some better form, quantity mm-hmm. and quality right. of sleep in order to be the parent they're trying to be. And they have a baby who, as of yet, isn't sleeping enough to satisfy all of that. So it's a very interesting conjunction of needs, right? What we found, I did a big study with families around the U.S., really capturing a lot of insights and data about sleep, moms and babies sleep mm-hmm. uh, in the, at four to six months of age. And when we collected all the data and looked and ran through all the analysis, we stepped back. We said, oh my gosh, this is so complex. Yeah. Right. 
you know, so many variables because we saw a, a subsection of moms who had quite high levels of sleep deprivation and anxiety who found comfort in bed sharing. Mm-hmm. And these were self-acknowledged moms who said, you know, I'm not sleeping. I'm really depressed and anxious, but I'm getting something from the bed sharing. <laughs> we stepped back from all the data said, wow, it's so not black and white. There's so many shades of gray. It's quite complex. It gave us even more reinforcement that, and encouragement that we have to use a toolbox of methods and then align the methods with the philosophy of a family. Well, I'm going to back up and throw something in here. And that is something I try to teach my new parents right away, which is that, you know, you can't sleep if you're hungry. Mm -hmm. Your brain is automatically going to go on alert and start foraging, even if your body doesn't get up and go do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're a breastfeeding mom and your body is metabolizing thoroughly, especially in the first six weeks, Mm -hmm. I think so much for a newborn who by rights should still be hooked up to a placenta anyway, you know, it's normal and natural to be hungry throughout the night. Most moms are doing a lot of the breastfeeding during the night, Mm -hmm. meaning that's when babies kind of wake up and smell the breast milk. You know, they're Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's, it's safe and quiet and dark. Let's eat. So I think a managing their expectations and their understanding of what babies need in those first six weeks to three months is important, but also what that mom needs. She needs to not think that she's going to be able to get through a 24 hour cycle on a bowl of granola, a sandwich and a bowl of soup. That's right. Right. Like you, your body can't calm down and sleep for those 20 minutes to three hour intervals that you might be lucky enough to get if you're hungry. That is something you can relate to your baby. They're not prepared to do that. In a nice way, your bodies are made to do that together anyway. So if you can stop imagining that in the first six weeks, you're going to lose your mind if you don't get eight hours of sleep. Right. And just as, as you were so beautifully illustrating about your own fourth trimester, Mm -hmm. like just sink down into what is, what is this baby doing? What do I do? How do we do it together? Let's, let's get in sync because even as sleep deprived as I was, I look back and realize it wasn't the baby doing it to me. Mm -hmm. She wasn't, you know, a the greatest sleeper on the planet, but she was sleeping throughout those 24 hours. It was the household I lived in and the disruptive behavior of adults and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. no, nobody around to feed me while I was sitting and lying down breastfeeding all day long. So, you know, I look back and realize, yeah, not optimal circumstances by a long shot right? and nobody to normalize any of that being somebody who was sleep trained too, you know, like I think there was some triggering going on Mm -hmm. (laughs) around having a new baby as well. That's kind of personal, but I think we don't realize like we were that baby once ourselves and somewhere inside of us remembers, (laughs) you know, it is much more complicated than we ever imagined and much more complex 
and helping a family find their way to the vision. That's why I always ask families when we start our work together, well, what is your vision? What does it look like? And sometimes I can hear in the response that their expectations are from a book they've read or an experience that a friend has had that's unrealistic. And then the work is to help them see their baby is doing exactly what they need to do. When parents come to me later and say, you know, I'm going to be going back to work. What do I do? Where do I go? The first thing I I let them know is I don't sleep train. So it's outside my purview. And Mm -hmm. the second thing I offer is if you know that this is going to be something you have to explore in order to survive and thrive, please call Angelique. Oh, (laughs) because I, I know that you have done the research, you know, it isn't, hasn't just been this. And is it appropriate to name the patriarchy when we're talking about men handing down, Mm -hmm. you know, advice to Mm -hmm. women primarily about how to sleep with babies? Like, I don't know. I have a big problem with that. Well, that's a whole tangential conversation. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I mean, we could look at Ferber and Wise with them. We have to take into account Sears and his original parenting books were largely Christian based. Mm -hmm. And that was 20 plus years ago. And his publisher asked him to eliminate those sections because they were largely based on division of roles between moms and dads. And the mom's role was to wake up at night and serve the baby. Uh, And you can feel a little part of that in the Sears approach to sleep. I, by the way, just as a matter of just my own reveal, I was hardcore attachment parenting and my approach to sleep and felt like kids should bed share and feed on demand until they went to college. (laughs) Right. And that was, I'm currently going through that now and full (laughs) disclosure, because I'm working with both of you, (laughs) all of these things. Yeah. It feels like a very natural progression. I want my baby to cuddle with me all the time and my baby wants to cuddle with me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Smart mom, smart baby. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, have you, are you back to work now? I just went back to work this week. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a full night's sleep since probably well over half of a year now. Um, mainly because at the end of my pregnancy, I was very uncomfortable and I had what I called jumpy legs and I just couldn't really sleep. And I slept better after I had my baby mm-hmm. because at least I was getting three hour stretches Right. That was fantastic. <laughs> and going back to work is exhausting. I'm now fully mentally engaged during the day, which takes up a ton of energy mm-hmm. um, in a way that's different from being mentally engaged while looking after a baby. And I'm, I'm more tired mm-hmm. and I'm planning to try the interval method in a few weeks when my baby is through her latest developmental cycle and work with you on that, Angelique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you. And (laughs) I'm excited about the prospect of getting more sleep. I'm also very cautious about causing my baby any undue stress, Mm -hmm. which is why I like the idea of Interval, I like everything you're telling me about it giving my baby reassurance throughout Mm -hmm. the night that I'm not abandoning her, that she's fine, that someone will always come if she cries and, and just reassure her and create Mm -hmm. that pattern of her knowing that, that she's not alone and that she can still eat. Now her body's big enough. I'm, I mean, Esther, you told me about the idea that baby stomachs have to grow to a size that's big enough before they can physically uh, 
ideally physically go through a, a certain period of time without eating, mm-hmm. which is like, did I tell you that? I think, you, <laughs> I think you did. I think we were talking about reflux and you experienced, oh, I think yeah, cases where people have maybe expected their baby to sleep 12 hours before their stomachs. Yeah. And that had a relationship with reflux. Right. Because babies were actually hungry, mm-hmm. thus producing, you know, when you get hungry, your body anticipates food, starts putting out hydrochloric acid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then when you're not fed, mm-hmm. you're going to have this reflux, mm-hmm. right? And so often I'm just aghast at the parents who are being, not the parents, but the parents are being told not to breastfeed or to limit breastfeeding at any stage as though that's going to be the thing that helps quell the the reflux. It sounds absolutely untenable to me. And the proof for me has been that when I do show up to clients who've been referred to me who have babies with reflux, they're burping, they're doing all these crazy things, but they're not feeding the baby. And the baby is clearly losing weight. It would be one thing if I was seeing these fat, happy babies, you know, who, who burp and scream because it hurts. And that is not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing skinny babies crying, 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 obviously Mm -hmm. looking for food. So I'm sad about that. I'm sad that, but clearly there comes a time when babies can sleep longer and longer periods. And it's not just breast milk, right? Like Babies need any kind of food, if like formula or breast milk, depending right. on oh, what yeah. people do. You can't do. just feed them a bottle of formula and think right. that the, <laughs> that's, makes all the difference. Yeah. Right. And that's, is, don't you think that's a myth that we've had for a long, long time, Angelique, is that, you know, you just, you feed a baby every four hours and you give them this amount of milk and you do this and this and this. And it seems to permeate our culture to this day, even with the, the rise of breastfeeding well, if you consider the most popular sleep book on Amazon right now is 12 hours and 12 weeks. Oh my God. And it's a book written by mom and co-authored by a lawyer and no offense to lawyers, but here's the basis of the book. It is that at 12 weeks of age, your baby will sleep 12 hours at night, no feeding and limit daytime feeds to only four feeds. Most popular book, sleep book on Amazon. And what we're seeing are babies who have failure to thrive. Yes. On that method, they start to lose a pound or more a week because they're not getting enough calories. And here we've got this disconnect. Moms are going back to work when the baby's around three to four months of age. If they've even had that much maternity leave, they're going back to work and they're faced with the prospect of how are they going to juggle working 40, 50 hours a week, including a commute, and then being a good mom. And then, of course, the transition to, say, a nanny or daycare provider that's now going to be the one offering feeding and sleeping. So the book feels like this magic bullet, like it's, it is going to solve all that very quickly for a mom who's well-intentioned and just considering options. Babies have eight growth spurts in the first 12 months. Growth spurts are a critical period of brain development when the brain needs food to develop. A critical period of brain development means that the baby is quickly organizing. The neurons are firing and wiring at a rapid rate as a baby organizes new skills and behavior. So at the pace of every four to six weeks over the first year, baby will have these critical periods of brain development. We take those into consideration and we ask parents not to do any big sleep training or sleep learning or sleep program during a critical period of brain development. We want babies to have their needs met and have nourishment so the brains get what they need during these periods of change. 
And that means eating at night and eating more than four times a day and getting some contact at night. That's exactly right. In effect, what you get with a method like that is the parent starts to lose their intuition about what their babies need. Mm -hmm. They've been successful getting the baby on a schedule. Again, it's very complex. There's a lot of nuances to this kind of the sleeping and feeding patterns of babies. And so what happens is that within a couple of weeks of being successful with the method, the baby regresses and the parent says, well, why is my baby failing? Why am I failing at this? And in effect, <laughs> what we have is just a missed moment for education. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. What's going on? Is your baby's doing beautiful. They're going through critical period of brain development. They need to see you and they need to be fed. Mm-hmm. What helps babies grow is being close to a loving, trusted caregiver. And when they're in a critical period of brain development, they need, they have a feeling for safety and response. There's no other way to get around it. Mm-hmm. And your job at that point, if your baby's waking up outside of a, the fee time during a critical period of brain development, your job then is to go respond and let them know they're safe and loved. When parents are, uh, you know, on the verge of making a major transition th- themselves, whether it's back to work or maybe moving, or you know, it could be any number of possibilities there, they're curious, like, well, what should we expect? And one of the things I say is, well, expect a baby who's going to need more contact because they're going through it too, and it's a big transition for them. We've already talked about grow spurts and what happens, what babies do and what they need and why. But then you throw in another big transition. It, maybe it's just travel, right? It's Maybe it's just you go on a trip and everything that, mm-hmm. that was kind of day-to-day for them is no longer for some period of time. You know, they're going to seek reassurance that everything's okay. And they have one way to do that, and that's to make contact with you. Mm-hmm. to see your face, to be held by your body, to see that you're fine and everything's okay. And so it's common, at least in my experience, that for instance, when mom goes back to work, right, baby's playing catch up during the night, you know, like, okay, there you are. I didn't see you for X number of hours. I'm going to see you now. <laughs> I'm going to see you all night. <laughs> and it's a healthy sign. Yeah. Yes. They saying, hey, this relationship means something to me. Mm-hmm. I am experiencing that yeah. as we speak. Yes, I bet you are. Yeah. Is co-sleeping safe? Here are a couple things to consider. American Academy of Pediatrics, who we'll say is the most conservative science-based body here in the U.S. with a, you know assorted sleep advice, they have now updated their recommendations. This is so interesting to me. In lieu of probably Dr. McKenna's work, because McKenna's done a lot of great work looking at how when babies are close to a caregiver at night, when they're sleeping close to a caregiver, they've seen less incidences of apnea episodes. Apnea is when a baby stops breathing. Surprise. (laughs) Totally. Hello. I mean, how have we led parents astray all these years? So it's compelling enough. Thank goodness for McKenna. McKenna does great research. He's an anthropologist. Mm Mm-hmm. Love that guy. Love that guy. And so the AAP said, gosh, this is so important that we're going to recommend room sharing. Babies and parents are not separated for at least the first six to 12 months, that they share the same room. I mean, that is a big deal considering that they've said for a long time, independent sleeping, get your baby safely sleeping alone in another room. Now they're saying that in fact, safe sleeping happens when we room share. However, 
they're not going to support bed sharing at this time. So I, I mentioned that because I want the, you know, just sort of set the context for understanding the sort of the, what parents, the recommendation parents are getting. The research that we did and, and other researchers at Study Sleep have found that parents are going to bed share up to 70% of parents will bed share at some point in the first three years. Mm-hmm. Bed share. So here we have this kind of disconnect. We do see that the field is catching up to what parents are actually doing, which is that parents are actually bed sharing. There's a lot of bed sharing, and it may not be for the whole night. What we have found in our research and we're seeing in the other research is that there's a lot of what's called hybrid sleep arrangements. That a baby may start off in a crib or co-sleeper pack and play in a separate room or in the parents' room, and then at some point in the night, the baby comes into the family bed. What we recommend for parents who are bed sharing is following the safe bed sharing guidelines that are very well established by a group of breastfeeding advocates here in this country. If we get the sense or we get reports from the parents that they can't be really safe about it, that would include like not using sleep meds, no alcohol, no drinking, no smoking, no other kids or pets in the bed. Those are some of the basics. If we're getting reports from the parents that the pets are in the bed, there are older siblings in the bed, that Maybe the spouse or partner or the other parent is using Ambien to sleep. Then we're going to recommend that the parent not bed share or bed share in a different sleep space. Mm-hmm. Do we have clients that we work with who are bed sharing? Absolutely. Do we have clients that want to continue to bed share? We certainly have a handful of those. And then we have to instruct them on safe bed sharing, especially as their baby is entering what we call the pre-toddler locomotive stage. (laughs) Which means that they could potentially and will do climb or roll out of the family bed. I love that high flutin term, Angelique, for like monkey in the bed. (laughs) Well, get this. I slept on a queen size water bed with my daughter and her dad. And what a nightmare. You'd think, oh my God, oh. doesn't that sound great? Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> right? It was terrible. Oh. oh my God. And somehow I didn't know to just say, this sucks. Get right. rid of this crap and get me a real bed. <laughs> well, I know. I know, right? Oh. Can you repeat the statistic you said, Angelique? How many, what percentage of parents co-sleep or bed share? What we found was, and the research also, you know, there's, so I'm looking at several different studies now, they're up to 70% of parents in the U.S. will bed share at some point in the first three years. What we're seeing is that sleep is much more fluid than we think. Mm -hmm. It's not as if you're just going to sleep train your six-month-old and you'll never hear from them again at night and voila, (laughs) you get the holy grail of 12 hours of sleep and, and, you know, there you go. I mean, that's really the crux of the data is that your baby could be sleeping very well the first year. And then at two years, they start developing nightmares. You've got a toddler that develops nightmares and night terrors, or just simply nightmares, and they climb out of the crib. Suddenly, you're bed sharing with a a, a toddler that you never imagined bed sharing with. And you're asking yourself, is this working for our family? I just met with the leading juvenile manufacturing company in the world. Mm -hmm. Had me out for an on-site in February in New York. And the evening before we had, they pulled me in to, to look at designing their new line of sleep products, which is very exciting. They see sleep as like the big, this is where it's all headed. And we had a meeting, a dinner meeting the night before with all the executives. And here I am, little researcher, mama, like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. 
And do you know, every one of those executives had co-slept with. <laughs> right on. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Not just for like a couple of months, for yeah. years, yeah. for years. And they all said, you know, it was the way that we kept the bonding up because I, they were all back to work. And they said, I just missed my little one desperately during the day. And that allowed me to have that time with them. And they missed me. And boy, what a roundtable discussion that was because they're looking to design products that encourage bed sharing safely. I try to explain to parents that, you know, if you've got this big fear of the boogeyman we call SIDS, Right. The thing that you need to know is that the primary correlation with babies who don't have SIDS is that they're breastfed. And we know that the most successful breastfeeding relationships are one where families co-sleep. So <laughs> put two and two together here. Just statistically speaking, it turns out that you're more likely to get through this if you're learning how to sleep when your baby sleeps and eat when your baby eats. Just right. real simple stuff. And the rest is details. It's the details like, is this a bed that a baby's going to be safe to sleep in with you? Are those pillows that you piled up in on your honeymoon night, you know, to make this bed like a wonderful boudoir safe for your baby? Probably not. Like, let's throw those overboard. You know, how do we just redesign your bed right. and the way, may, maybe a little bit of the way you sleep in it so that everybody's safe now? That's right. I know that when I was a new mom, we bed shared. And then I'm a stomach sleeper mm. and I was desperate to get back on my tummy. And so at seven weeks, I put her in the Moses basket right next to the side of the bed. And then we room shared until she was 18 months old. And that worked great. She joins me on all my business trips. She's been on 104 flights just turned three. So we were going to room share. We were, it was going to happen anyway, because every two or three weeks we were back on the road at another site doing a training or a lecture. And she joined me on all those. So I mentioned it because I really ask parents to think about what's going to work for their family. How sleep deprived are they? Are they able to sleep when the baby's in the bed with them? Are they even able to sleep if the baby's room sharing with them? Yeah. And What's their commute like? What's their day look like? What are their commitments? What's their health like? What kind of support do they have from their spouse or partner? And by extension, their village and community. Because those have, it all has to be taken into consideration when families are considering next steps. I'm curious how often you come across a chronic or acute undiagnosed illness in a mom that's causing her sleep deprivation while she's thinking it maybe is her relationship to the babies. Yes, I definitely see it. Because what we found is that they're all commingled. That likely what mom's going through is going to have a relationship to the sleep and feed patterns. Now, it's the chicken or egg. We don't know which one came first. And so what we try to do is we try to establish an appropriate baseline sleep pattern for baby sleeping and feeding. And then we step back and ask mom, well, how are you sleeping now? And if mom reports... Like, let's say the baby's sleeping a little bit better. Mom says, well, I'm not sleeping well. I just, I, I'm not, I can't sleep any better. I'm feeling worse. And then we start to refer out what would be traumatic events during pregnancy and birth mm -hmm. and early postpartum, where there may be some post-traumatic stress disorder that's leading to like a cascade of symptoms that are insomnia, anxiety related. Mm -hmm. 
postpartum depression has a lot of physical manifestations, as you know, that can lead to sleep issues in moms. Pelvic floor discomfort. Moms who've had, may have had some pregnancy, pelvic floor discomfort, or interventions at birth that are causing discomfort may have a really difficult time sleeping. A big one that we're seeing would be uh, hormone issues or thyroid issues in moms. Yeah. That are going very often undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for months to years. Mm -hmm. So if we can establish the baseline sleep in baby, and then we can ask that question, that really important question, how are you sleeping now? And the report after a couple of weeks from mom is, hey, I'm not sleeping. Then we start to use our resource list and make referrals out so that mom can start to get her sleep back. You know, I think it's an important thing for moms to know about, you know, when I'm working with moms and they're not being seen for the first six weeks, and Sarah will remember this. Remember my little list of things that I said, look, how about you get the following things checked as a baseline, see how you're doing, even if you're asymptomatic, right? Even if things aren't looking bad. Now they might give you pushback and say, well, unless you have symptoms, we really don't want to test you for this. And that's fair. But so often there are things lurking that But for this thorough exam, it's just blood tests and you might suffer for months and months and months. And what the heck, you have a baseline, you know, hopefully that you're no longer anemic, you know, anemia plagues women all over the world and it doesn't help you sleep better. And it's a simple thing. Are not getting the protein and fat that's needed. Mom who's just really tired isn't able to get access to really good nutrition or wholesome Nutrition is mostly using carbohydrates for nutrition. So there can be a lot that contributes. We certainly look at the mom and baby as a, as a dyad, as a duo. Then by extension, we look at the family as the client or the patient. We won't separate them out. We're really interested in hearing how this whole family is functioning as a whole. How is their sleep going? We do have an extensive resource to referral list because we feel so strongly that if we think that The lack of sleep, I consider it the window in, like the door in. If we have the opportunity to get the family the resources they need beyond just helping them sleep, then we're going to do that. How do you talk to partners about how their behavior day and night might be affecting mom's sleep? It's definitely a big part of how we set up the methods is to enlist the spouse or partner in the method. In fact, that's probably a big departure that I take from the classical interpretation of interval method is that I don't enlist the mom to do the method because it's too confusing for a baby who's who's bonded quite closely with mom via feeding to now see her as the person that's going to leave when the baby's crying. A baby is confused by that, which completely makes sense. It's like being on a no carb diet and then the pizza guy keeps coming over with the pizza. Yeah. And the baby just gets confused. So good metaphor. <laughs> and the parents they can when I explain it like that, they they understand it. And so when, you know, for example, any one of the methods, and by the way, we haven't talked about the other methods in the toolbox. We've talked about the sleep training one, because that certainly is one that parents are curious about. Half the parents I work with will use that method, by the way. Mm. But then there's a no low cry method that works very well that I developed over 20 years ago. It just takes a lot of work. It takes four to six weeks to get results. So for any one of these methods, we enlist the spouse or partner to participate. And often that becomes a bridge for the spouse or partner feeling like they've got some tools in the toolkit for participating in sleep routines altogether. Maybe they haven't participated because the baby was largely focused on mom or mom was largely focused on baby. So this is a bridge that we consider a bridge for getting the spouse or partner to participate. We're certainly seeing a lot more partners willing to participate with the bedtimes and night sleep. 
especially in the last 10, 15 years, I'm seeing a lot more of the, we'll call them shared parenting responsibilities, even at night. So we get lucky for sure with those families where it's just a given. With the families where that's not the case, then there's a bit of education and support and a little bit of setting up the methods so that the partner can participate. I will say sometimes they're willing to, sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is bigger than the work we're going to do together. We always do an intake with the family before we work with them. We get several intakes a year where we say the family to the parents because we try to have them both on the intake. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. But we'll say that, you know, it would be helpful if you had a little bit of time with a couple's therapist before we do the sleep work. We'll say, come back to us in a couple months because I think this the work will be much more impactful if you've had a little bit of support. That can come up in the intake. We already can assess for that. That's brilliant, Angelique, that, you, <laughs> that you've got a, that kind of an intake. I'm impressed with that. <laughs> well, we want them to be successful. Yeah. And we know that it takes a team to be successful. Even for the single moms that we work with, we pull in support. So they've got some support to help with the method if, if it's a trusted family member or even a night doula that will pull in that is really compassionate and can be there for the mom to support her. What advice do you have for parents so that they're making the most of their fourth trimester, that first few months of, at home with their baby, to set a pattern of healthy sleep habits for their family? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one part intuition and slowing down and getting to know the rough edges around trying to meet the needs of your baby will try to meet your own needs. And then the other part is probably just very simple routines that's you know, we think of them as schedule, like a, a schedule, but those routines are starting really early on. It's kind of just part of the mix that babies are born without fully developed circadian rhythms, which is really unfortunate for the whole mix. But the circadian rhythms develop out of needs being met consistently over those first few months. I mean, it's, it's amazing the interplay there, but I always say sleep is about relationship and it really is. The development of even circadian rhythms, are, you know, that's it's just going to develop and it happens because mom is feeding the baby frequently during the day and they're bonding and having time together and they're getting outside and exposure to sunlight. And then the baby starts to sleep a little longer stretch at night. And all that happens because of relationship. So I make some really simple suggestions about getting outside every day and starting even a bedtime routine. And it, again, it's not, it, it's a very, just a simple routine that helps the baby know that when this soft music is playing or the lights are turned low and there's this warm water, like it could be a bath or a washcloth, that sleep time is going to happen next. So it's setting the stage for how babies start to transition to what happens next. So those kinds of little sleep routines can be introduced. I start them as early as two to four weeks. Very, very simple, you know, think of bonding kind of aspects to the sleep routines. I start them very early on and they're zeitgeibers that really help a baby know they're like cueing the baby like, okay, I'm going to, my body's going to get to sleep at this point. We're helping parents identify sleep cues for a first time parent. They may be missing baby sleep windows because they just don't know what those baby sleep signs are or sleep cues. And some babies don't have very clear ones. Some babies yawn and rub eyes or eyes turn red, but some babies don't yawn at all. They just stare off into space. They just have gaze avert. That's the only sleep sign they have. <laughs> and a first time parent may think, Hey, I'm not being entertaining enough. I better ramp it up. And sure enough, a baby's communicating is, Hey, too much. Take it down about a million notches. I need to go to sleep. I'm getting overstimulated. So they're really simple. What we'll call education 
kinds of strategies early on. We certainly see that there's a higher predominance or greater predominance of sleeping issues in babies that have feeding issues. We help parents to sort those out in the first one, two, three months. So feeding issues that we're seeing would be reflex, lip tie, tongue ties, so latch issues. And so we want to help those parents are oversupply. I just had a consultation with a family where the babies doubled the weight at by 10 weeks of age, the birth weight. And they're having all kinds of sleeping issues, especially at night because the baby is overfeeding. The baby's getting too much food. Mm-hmm. Wow, it would be a real problem if we try to sleep train that baby because it's not a sleeping. I mean, it's become a sleeping issue. It's in fact a feeding issue. Yeah. So we're giving some suggestions we're referring out to LC. We're also giving some immediate recommendations for some different feeding positions and changes to the feeding so that we can immediately start to reduce the likelihood that the oversupply is what's contributing to the discomfort, what's contributing to the irregular sleep patterns. You mentioned oversupply. What is the answer for that? It is a lot of experimentation with position is what I've discovered. Mm. What worked best for me was not a classic, like a C hold or C position. You know, my little one was just basically drowning in breast milk when I did that. <laughs> what worked best for us was side life feeding and then block feeding. And it really immediately shifted the reflux, the discomfort she was having. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Angelique, I've learned so much from you. Thank you. This was great. Really great. Oh, thank you so much. I've learned so much from both of you. It's just such a pleasure to hear your experiences. And Esther, you're doing amazing work with families. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. It's really helping them slow down. (laughs) It's my goal. (laughs) Lie down and breastfeed. Feed mommy. (laughs) Simple little things like that. Yeah. You can find out more about Esther Gallagher on estergallagher.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again, bicycle man I know you're doing all that you can I wrote the song, simple and true I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you You got your wheels, you got your gears You ride around town without any fear You got your pedals, you got your brakes You always wear your helmet for safety's sake